It's very good to see you all. There are the four, four substitutes for Father Greenwell, I know, but uh, we'll make the best of it. I do have some very good news for you. The Supreme Court has just overturned the Roe versus Wade decision. Uh, I don't know how many of you are aware of that, but it happened this morning and uh, on the Feast of the Sacred Heart of Jesus. And there's general rejoicing in the pro-life camp, of course, uh, weeping and gnashing your teeth on the part of the uh, pro-abortionists. And uh, truly, now the, the fight begins uh, in, a, in a different level. Uh, now it's a matter of taking the fight to the states. But the Roe versus Wade uh, decision said that it was a matter of the Constitution. The Constitution of the United States of America gave the right to abortion to Americans. And uh, the decision of this morning said that the Constitution of the United States does not afford this right. There is no such right to abortion in the Constitution of the United States of America. So now it returns to the states, and uh, as they say, this is where the uh, battle begins on the state-by-state -state level. So we have to be prepared for that. But we also have to be prepared for the wrath of the uh, of the pro-abortionists, we have to recall, always be aware of the fact that we're not surprised. We have to remind ourselves that we are not surprised by the behavior of those who favor abortion. Uh, when we find that they are violent and vicious, uh, abortion itself is violent and vicious. And this is, unfortunately, a generation that has been bred on abortion. And so um, we have to overcome their violence and viciousness also. Uh, how do we overcome that? Well, first of all, appeal to God for prayer because it's going to require a lot of grace, a lot of grace for them. Uh, we're going to need a lot of grace in order to persevere in that fight as well. Uh, we're going to need a lot of grace in order to not respond in kind. Uh, we we'll have to respond uh, by the rules of self-defense. We'll have to defend what we love and uh, protect what we know is right and good. And uh, there are, of course, rules of the church regarding that as to what can be done uh, honestly and rightfully. Um, but um, above all, we uh, cannot be motivated by any hatred. Um, that is exactly the problem, actually, that we've been dealing with, addressing all these years. And uh, so uh, we're concerned for the souls of the young children involved, of course, the, the children before birth, and concerned for the souls of their mothers, and concerned for the souls of, of everyone, actually, um, also concerned about the souls of those who are threatening uh, violence because they demand the right that to put children to death, sad to say. And we are actually concerned for their souls too. So uh, let us hope and pray that we can move forward here on the, in the right level. But this is a, a major step. You know, uh, it is remarkable uh, in light of the actual Supreme Court justices that this was done it has to be the stroke of some very powerful grace that was gained over years by sacrifice and by prayer. And it shows that there are graces at work and that uh, the graces are there. We have to uh, reach out for them. So I ask that uh, you do that. We're going to have the uh, rosary today, 15 decades of the rosary, you know, and uh, we should offer those 15 decades of the rosary and thanksgiving to God for this grace. And uh, we'll do that after the conference is finished here. Now, there is a book that was recommended to me by actually one of you fine gentlemen here, How to Pray Always, was recommended uh, by uh, to me uh, maybe 10 days ago or so. And uh, no sooner did uh, this put in front of me then uh, I'd ordered uh, 45 copies of it. So 
uh, I believe these books are available to you. Um, I'd ask you to make a donation of $10 for the book. I think you'll find it rather helpful, interesting, and uh, a good guide, and as it says, how to pray always. The Jesuit priest, who is the author, has written many religious, many devotional books, and they are widely received and uh, enthusiastically, I'd say, promoted by the church because he uh, speaks uh, very, very well about the life of the soul in, with uh, sanctifying grace. So I recommend this book to you. It's not required for the retreat, of course. It was meant to be made available to you to use as a tool. Now, we, we just celebrated the Feast of the Most Blessed Trinity. You know that. The Sunday after Pentecost is dedicated to the Blessed Trinity. And for the past six months, we have remembered and we have reenacted the wonderful deeds of God. In Advent, we recall the promise of a Redeemer, born of a woman who would be the enemy of Satan. And at Christmas, we celebrated the coming of that Redeemer as a baby born of that sinless woman, Satan's enemy. During the days that followed Christmas, we commemorated the, the naming of that child Jesus and his circumcision, the adoration of the Magi, the flight of the Holy Family to Egypt. All of those we, in a sense, relived in thought, in prayer. We pondered the mystery of our Lord as the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, being baptized in the Jordan River by John the Baptist, whose feast day is tomorrow. Then his first public miracle of changing the water to wine at the wedding feast of Cana. And with the coming of Septuagesima Sunday, we heard the call to remain faithful and fruitful for Christ as diabolical and human pride came together to challenge and contradict our Lord and conspire against him and to condemn him to die on the cross. We rejoiced at his glorious resurrection, at his triumph, his triumphant ascension into heaven. And we marveled at the transforming power of the Holy Ghost on Pentecost when that divine spirit was sent by our Lord from the Father in order to transform the apostles. And what a tremendous transformation it was on Pentecost Sunday. So all of that we've commemorated over the last six months. And then we come to the feast of the Blessed Trinity itself. And after the great events we've lived and relived throughout the past half year, when we focused on and reflected on the wonderful works of God, we came to a feast day which concerns not so much the wonderful things God has done as rather the question of who this God is who has done these wonderful things. Who is this God? That is what the feast day of the Blessed Trinity is all about. And this feast day finally celebrates Almighty God as a trinity of divine persons. And by his Son, this God has revealed himself to us as Father. The Son, his divine word in eternity, became man in time and has told us, he who sees me sees the Father. And the Son promised to send us from God the Spirit of Truth, who is the divine person of a blessed trinity the third divine person of the Blessed Trinity. Three divine persons of one divine being. A mystery indeed. 
But of course, then you know that any true religion that comes from God must in fact contain mysteries. It must contain truths that are beyond the power of human understanding. If you have a religion that contains no mysteries that are beyond the power of the human mind, then that religion was made up by the human mind. It is an invention of men. But any religion that reveals who God is, the true religion that comes from heaven, not from earth, must contain divine mysteries, must contain truths that are beyond the human power of understanding. The rationalist philosophers and the naturalist philosophers would have us believe that it is degrading for us human beings to accept as true anything we can't understand and to accept especially religious truth that is beyond the power of comprehension, that this is somehow degrading for us to accept. But by saying that, they are automatically ruling out the possibility of our believing in any true religion, which must necessarily contain truths that have to be revealed because we cannot have the possibility of understanding them or discovering them ourselves. And with the truth that there are, in fact, three distinct divine persons who are one divine being, we realize that God knows and loves, because that's actually what it says to us. Is if there are three divine persons and one divine being, it manifests that God knows and loves. That God's knowing is the very principle or source of what we call the procession of the Son from the Father, by which the Father generates the Son. And God's loving is the very principle or source by which the Father and the Son breathe together. They breathe forth the Holy Ghost by a procession called spiration. These words that are characteristic, they're actually theological words used specifically for the procession of the Son from the Father and of the Holy Ghost from the Father and the Son. Generation, inspiration, actually are reflected in us in a very special way, which you'll see in just a moment. The question here we have is, where is this image of God in man? And is this image of God in man simply a reflection of God as spirit and immortal and therefore eternal? Or does it go deeper than that? Do we actually reflect God as Blessed Trinity too? Well, in fact, the knowing and loving of God are revealed to us already on the first page of sacred scripture. In the account of creation, we already see there God knowing and loving. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And at the conclusion of each day, we read, and God saw that it was good. And God's knowing is expressed in the words, God saw. That represents his knowledge. And that he saw that it was good, that reflects his love. Because it is the intelligence that enables us to see and understand, and it is the will that enables us to love what is good. And so God crowned and consummated his creation by this resolution. God resolved, let us make man in our own image and likeness. Let us make man, he says. Genesis chapter 1, verse 26. And he said, let us make man to our image and likeness and let him have dominion over the fishes of the sea and the fowls of the air and the beasts and the whole earth 
and every creeping creature that moveth upon the earth. And God created man to his own image. To the image of God he created him. Male and female he created them. And God blessed them, saying, Increase and multiply and fill the earth. And so you see right from the very first pages of divine revelation in sacred scripture, in the book of Genesis, chapter 1, we read of the plurality of persons in God. It was cryptic, it was mysterious, it did not accomplish the purpose of convincing those who received this revelation that God was three persons in one being. But it was definitely a very powerful divine hint. The plurality of God as persons was expressed, let us make man in our image. And after the fall, Again, we read the same thing. We read of God speaking. By the way, this is the first time God is quoted anywhere. God was quoted as saying that. That was the first thing that God said after, let there be light. He said, let us make man in our image and likeness. <coughs> and so we see God saying, after human beings fell into sin, behold, Adam is become as one of us, knowing good and evil. Now therefore, lest perhaps he put forth his hand, and take also of the tree of life, and eat and live forever. So again, you see, in the early days, in the very earliest days of creation, the very earliest expressions of those days in divine revelation, we have God quoted referring to himself as a plural again a very strong statement here a very strong hint of the blessed trinity that would be revealed to us explicitly by our lord jesus christ there are those who say that the expression in hebrew let there be light actually has a far deeper meaning than appears on the surface. There are those who say that the Hebrew word or for light, the Hebrew word or means more than mere light itself, but that it indicates not only or as the Hebrew word is, but order. But we know in English as order, that God was saying, let there be order that the first statement of God created the heaven, heaven and earth, and there was darkness over the earth, and it was formless, it was formless. And God commanded that there be light, indicating that with that light came order as well. St. Augustine, on his part, referring to that passage from sacred scripture, also questions whether or not this might include the creation of the angels by that command, let there be light, that the angels came into being at the dawn of creation. St. Augustine says it is possible to understand this. There's nothing anti-Catholic about it to say that. Interesting that St. Augustine would refer to that because otherwise there would, be no ref there would be no reference to the creation of the angels, only that they suddenly appear. In any case, since our divine creator fashioned us in his own image and likeness, we must recognize that he created us for a great purpose and a great destiny, to perpetually mirror his own divine perfections. What does this mean? God made us in his own image. Is this not to say the same as God made us in his own likeness, or is there a difference here? Why would divine revelation in the words of sacred scripture state that our first parents were created in both the image and the likeness of God? And what is the difference, or are they equivalent? Well, even in our own common language, we distinguish between image and likeness.
When we say that a, a boy is the very or even spitting image of his father, we say merely that he outwardly resembles his father. He looks like him in appearance. But no matter how closely one person might look like another, the two might be very different in character and temperament, in abilities and accomplishments, in intentions and purposes. But when we say that a boy is like his father, is so very like his father, even just like his father, we refer to much more than a mere external appearance. To say that he's the image of his father means that his outward appearance reminds us so much of his father, but to say that he's like his father means that he acts like his father, he sounds like his father, perhaps even thinks like his father. Likeness carries the sense of resembling his father in the way he speaks and expresses himself, in the way he acts and reacts, in the way he thinks and responds, in the way he evaluates things and applies himself. So likeness has to do with an internal personal correspondence of character, which goes far beyond plain appearance. You might say that the image has to do with appearance and likeness has to do with our very personality. In this sense, we might say that a picture is an excellent image of a person, but it can never really be a perfect likeness. And so when we speak of the image of God in ourselves, we don't mean that we merely have an outward appearance to God, because God, by his divine nature, has no outward appearance at all. He is pure spirit. So the image of God must be in us in that which is spiritual. That is, in our souls. And thus we mean that we resemble God in a very real but limited way according to our nature. And even here we see more than a mere vague resemblance to God, though. When God says, let us make man in our own image, he gives us more than a mere superficial resemblance to himself. For God actually endowed our nature with powers that enable us to do what he does. God endowed us with intelligence to know truth and to love goodness by the power of the will and to rejoice in what is beautiful. Certainly, one of the most characteristic features of human existence that we rejoice in what is beautiful. In this we see that we have the natural powers to act in a very limited but real way as God and God himself acts. And so God created us. But we've fallen by sin, uh, thus inflicting a mortal wound to both soul and body. And can we still find the image of God in ourselves by nature after we sin? Is there still this, the, the image of God in man after sin? Yes, there is. We still have the powers by nature of intelligence and will to know truth, love goodness, and to appreciate what is beautiful. But the likeness of God, what of that? Well, as I say, the natural image of God remains within us, even in the worst of sinners, even in the nature of the angels, even in the nature of the fallen angels, even in Lucifer himself, now Satan. That image of God remains according to nature, and Satan hates what he sees, actually hates that he bears within himself the very image of God, and it's something he cannot destroy. 
He does not have the power as a creature to destroy his own nature. And so he simply has to continue existing with it, carrying within him that contradiction, feeling as though it's tearing him apart moment by moment and he can't escape it. Well, the natural image of God remains within us sinners, although it is distorted by sin. We know this because while we do have the power to change our nature, in a sense, we do not have the power to exchange it for another nature. What I mean by that is, we don't have the ability to destroy the nature that God created in us. But, as human beings, we have the power to repent and to change our character. That is something that we have by nature. And so even as sinners, we still have the powers, however impaired they are, the power of knowing truth, loving goodness, and finding joy in what is beautiful. It's just that those powers are so impaired and darkened and crippled within us that we so often embrace what is not true, what is not good, and what is not beautiful in the eyes of God. Even Satan, as I say, does not have the power to destroy our nature. Satan can't destroy our nature, nor can he destroy his own. Try as he might. He cannot efface that natural image of God, neither in himself nor in us. Nor can we annihilate our own nature. But we can mar it, we can distort it, we can disfigure it, we can corrupt it. This we do by sin, which is essentially, essentially loving badly, or loving falsely. <coughs> Our wills are made to love, and this is what they naturally do. They love. The object of love is goodness. <clears throat> so how can we sin if it is the very nature of our wills to love and to love what is good? In fact, it's impossible for us to love under the aspect of evil. We can love. The will is destined to and limited to love only under the aspect of good. So how is it even possible for us to sin? Well, the, when we love what is good, we should love according to the measure of goodness. We should love the greater goods more, and we should love the greatest good most of all. And so there, there must therefore be an order, well, there's the word again. There must be an order within us, and there must be an order within our love. The wills, the faculty given to us to love, meet the goods around us, the goods outside of us, even the goods within us, ourselves. And uh, that is to be our first measure of love. Love thy neighbor as thyself. So we see all these good things, but we see they are not all equally good. And so to love rightly, to love according to right reason, our intelligence, we should love things according to the goodness that is in them. And according to the goodness that is in them, there's a hierarchy. We see good, we see better, and we see best. And loving rightly means that we love the greater goods more and the greatest good most of all. Now the greatest good is God himself, who is infinite goodness, infinite goodness and even goodness itself. So as creatures, we cannot love with infinite love. And we can never really love God according to the measure of God's goodness, which is infinite. But nor does God expect us or demand that we love him as he deserves to be loved. Because God knows, as creatures, we cannot. He does not demand the impossible. 
He does ask us this, though. He does demand this. He has to. As God, he has to insist on this. That we love him as God. And we love him as the greatest good. He does not ask us to love him as he deserves to be loved. But he only requires that we love him best. That is, that of all those we love, we love him the most. Above all other loves. And that is rightly well-ordered love. In the well-ordered will of a well-ordered soul. To love God the best. To love him the most. That is what is necessary to be in the state of grace. Now sin diverts and inverts and perverts that order of love that should be in us. By sin we choose ungratefully and selfishly to love a lesser good more. A created and a worldly and corruptible good more than God. And thus we set it up in our affections as a kind of idol in the place of God. <coughs> we displace where our love for God should be, or where I should say God should be in our love. And we place there something created, something inferior, something corruptible. And we effectively tell God, I prefer this to you. And if you can't accept that, a lesser or lower place in my love, if you can't accept the fact that I still value you as the giver of gifts or some other lesser role in my life, if you insist that I love you as my God, then you must leave. You must leave my soul. You cannot stay if you insist that I love you as my God, meaning I love you most of all. I will not. It was in doing this that our first parents lost the likeness of God which was in them by divine grace. It was a supernatural likeness, a likeness by which they would think as God thought and love as God loved. There would be that perfect order that God created in them. They effectively murdered their own souls by extinguishing the supernatural life, which alone gave them the claim to everlasting life, a share in God's own divine life. They murdered their bodies by calling down a death sentence upon themselves in the natural life that they enjoyed. This was the effect of sin on them. And by sin we forfeited that likeness to God which comes with sanctifying grace. Now by repentance and the merits of our Lord Jesus Christ who came to redeem us and thus afford us the grace of justification and to sanctify us by the power of the Holy Ghost, we can be restored to that. That likeness of God can be restored to us that grace called sanctifying grace, which makes the whole soul holy and pleasing to God, which actually makes the soul like God. That order can be restored to the soul, but that's what it is. It is a restoration of order to the soul, a disordered soul with a disordered love. We can overcome that. God can overcome that. And how does God overcome that? He overcomes that by the virtues he overcomes that by the virtues, the strengths with which he endows us. But you see, because there is within us a kind of opposition now, a kind of opposition to his grace, a kind of opposition to God's working within us to restore that order, God must first give us gifts outright gifts. We call them the gifts of the Holy Ghost. And the gifts of the Holy Ghost are enumerated, enumerated in sacred scripture. From their beginning point all the way to their end. 
There are seven of these gifts. The first of them, where the work of God can begin in the soul, is called the fear of the Lord. And then step by step by step, we have the gifts that take us to the greatest of all, and that is wisdom. And by fear of the Lord, the sinner acknowledges his state, acknowledges his guilt and his fault, and recognizes that he is indeed subject to God's judgment and punishment. And so he has a certain fear of God. And that fear is not just the fear of a, a slave for a master, a servile fear. But actually, as a gift of the Holy Ghost, it begins rather to take on the aspect of a filial fear, where the sinner begins to feel that a God who loves him finds it necessary to punish him, and he is subject to being punished. In this soul, there may be very little, if any, love for God, but this is God's appeal to that soul to make an act of humility by acknowledging God's control, by acknowledging God's justice, that sin will be punished. That's a very important beginning, in fact, that is and must be the beginning of a conversion. Rousseau acknowledges that it is in the hands of God, who is sovereign, that it is guilty, deserving of punishment. That is the very beginning of the conversion of his soul. And step by step, gift by gift, the soul learns to love God more and more until the soul comes to the point with the gift of wisdom where the person so loves God that he actually achieves a kind of uniformity of his will with God. Remember, love is the function of the will. And so we'd expect that perfection of wisdom and the perfection of the soul to be actually accomplished in the will by bringing the will in line with the divine will. Again, that is when the soul is truly in order. Order is the key. Sin is disorder. And sanctification is the restoration of that order in the soul. And by wisdom, I say that it brings the soul, the will, into uniformity with the will of God. It's something more than conformity, because when we conform something, we make something in line with something else. It requires a certain amount of effort, shall we say, to overcome obstacles, and we make something conform. But with wisdom, we don't just conform our wills, we've done that. And now there is a uniformity of our wills with God's, an utter and complete acceptance of the will of God, and where we actually join our wills in uniting with God to will what He wills. And that is true sanctity. That's what the saints in heaven have. And those who love God perfectly on earth, such as the Blessed Mother, that's what they have. That wisdom, which is the uniformity of their wills with God's will. And that's why we refer to Blessed Mother as divine wisdom, because this is how it is presented to us in the books of the Old Testament, the so-called sapiential books, the, the wisdom books of the Old Testament. And we see that referring to Our Lady. She personifies divine wisdom. Now, when I talk about these gifts, you realize I'm talking about something that makes us entirely passive. And what God is doing when he gives us these gifts is he's opening up channels into our souls. He's finding access into our souls, which by sin are closed against him. So God wants to deliver to us. He wants to deliver graces to us. But in order to deliver those graces to us, he needs access. 
and the gifts that God gives open up that access of his grace into our souls. When you pray for whatever you're asking, whether it be a promotion at work or you're asking God to give you the grace of patience, you're opening up these channels in your souls, cooperating with the gifts, in a sense, seconding the gifts of God, <clears throat> saying, yes, oh God, thank you for this gift, I want this, and uh, I want to follow through on this. Uh, so I want to be generous, I want to be humble, I want to be patient, I want to be kind, I want to be charitable, I want to be honest, whatever virtue you say, yes, I want to act upon this now, I want to follow through, as it were, follow through on this. <coughs> You're not actually telling God what you need, as though he doesn't know. Of course he knows exactly what you need. What you're doing is you're opening up those channels of grace into your soul more perfectly. In a sense, opening up those channels of grace wider to your soul, so God has greater access, less opposition, because of our pride. So your praying is extremely important, indispensable, in fact, not from God's point of view, as though he needs your prayers to know or to love, he needs access to your soul, though. And you've closed that off by the illegitimate exercise of free will, imposing a sinful disorder in the soul, and now God needs access in order to remedy that. You give that to him when you, when you pray, when you respond to those gifts. So where do these virtues come in? I mean, the virtues that actually make you a good man. The powers that make you human, the powers of the soul, intelligence and will, even when they're impaired by physical disabilities, even when they're not functioning yet, when they're only latent, as in a newborn baby who is baptized, but even before the baby is baptized, the baby is already in the image of God, the power of intellect and the power of will are already in the soul of that child. So the child cannot yet exercise those powers. But how do you get to the point then where you have the virtues, the strengths necessary to actually define you as a good person? Because that's, generally speaking, historically, what has been used to define a good person, a good man. A good man is one who has the virtues. One who has the virtues that are truly admirable. One who has the virtues of an ordered soul. Well, as God gives the graces and those, the graces of what we call the gifts, and he has access, and the supply line to the soul is established there. And the graces are delivered to the soul, and the person cooperates with those graces. The person begins to develop the response, and that is the response we have to the grace of God. The gifts that God gives are received by us as passive recipients. We can only receive them. But when we take the gifts that God gives, and we respond with our intelligence and our will, then we begin to cultivate what are called the virtues. The virtues that actually make us good. That's our response to the divine gifts. And by those virtues, we are striving to build up or rebuild in ourselves rebuild in our human nature at least, the order that God created us to have. And the virtues do that. Now, if you go back to the pagan world, yes, the pagans were well aware of virtues. I mean, they did appreciate 
the things that you and I would consider virtuous. They considered bravery a great virtue. We would consider it fortitude. They thought that was a great virtue in a man. Some of them, some pagans even said, that is such the manly virtue that without bravery, you're not a man at all. You have to be brave even to call yourself a man. They considered it the greatest of the virtues. In a warlike society, of course, bravery or fortitude were considered to be the great or not the greatest of the virtues. <coughs> Statesmen, even pagans of old, considered justice to be the most important virtue of all. You see, depending on the kind of lives they lived and where they were coming from, they might say, well, this is the virtue I need most. <clears throat> and so a judge would need to be just, think in a just way. He would need to have the virtue of justice. This is even among the pagans. They understood this. They worked this out very, very thoroughly. Saint, no, I can't call him a saint, can I? I shouldn't, although I hope somehow, by the grace of God, he saved his soul. Aristotle, the philosopher, was a very thoughtful man, a lover of wisdom, as the word philosophy says. And in his Nicomachean Ethics, commented on by St. Thomas Aquinas later, and widely used by St. Thomas as a very excellent statement for the virtues, notably the virtues which we call now the moral virtues. Aristotle spoke extensively about these virtues as being necessary for a human life. He said, to live humanly, to live a good life in this world, a man would have to have fortitude and bravery. A man would have to have justice and be just. A man would have to be temperate in his life and not be a glutton or a drunk. He would have to be able to moderate his desire for physical pleasures and comforts. He would have to overcome his fears by fortitude. He would have to look over, overlook his self-interest for the sake of what he knows is owed, what is owed to another person, and be able to work that out in his mind and in practice to give to others what was due to them, the virtue of justice. Yes, Aristotle understood this 300 years before Christ. It's part of human nature. So even pagans can understand these things. And not only that, pagans can have justice and fortitude and temperance. There are many stories from the ancient world, the pagan world, of courageous soldiers. Horatio at the bridge, standing there, holding off the Tarquinian kings and their minions so that Rome would be free of its rapacious kings and become a republic. An example of courage. Even the Cincinnatus or the Cincinnati giving us tales of courage and self-sacrifice. So many others too. We have tales that come down to us of historical figures, pagan figures who exempted who exemplified these wonderful virtues. Those who would speak justly and act justly and require justice from others. Those who exhibited great self-control and temperance over their appetites. Yes, there were many of them. Because humanly speaking, these are virtues that we can acquire. But we can acquire them out of pride, out of a kind of self-love. We can acquire these virtues because we believe that anything else is unworthy of us. We would be ashamed of ourselves if we acted in a cowardly fashion or in a drunken fashion. So the standard by which we measure is our self-concept of what we think we should be to please ourselves. When our Lord came, he introduced an entirely different measure. And that measure was the love of God, the sanctification of the soul. 
an everlasting life, not just living life for this world, but living life for the next. Everlasting life was then the goal. So suddenly these virtues, the moral virtues of prudence and justice and fortitude and temperance, prudence, justice, fortitude and temperance, known even to the pagans, admired by them, sought after by them, and often acquired by them. Suddenly these virtues took on an entire different character, an entirely different purpose, not just to please men or even oneself, and not just to secure a nicely comfortable, problem-free life in this world. Suddenly these virtues had an entirely different purpose, and that was serving God, serving Almighty God, recognizing that purpose for our existence now, now we can practice prudence, justice, fortitude, and temperance for God's sake. And now these virtues are not only going to be acquired by us by practice, now we can pray for them. Now we can ask God to give them to us. We can ask him to infuse them into our souls so that we have this divine power behind us. What a difference this is now. So it's almost like a ship, like a massive ship, each one of us, our souls. Yes, we have the gifts of God, like the, the breath of the Holy Ghost, like a wind in our sails to move us forward. And we don't have to struggle and strain. All we have to do is raise the sails and catch that those gifts of God as the divine breath of the Holy Ghost in our souls, propelling us forward. But we also have the oars by which we can labor and strain forward ourselves in cooperation with the wind. And we also have to steer the boat by its rudder. These are the things we do with our effort. But we also have the combination of the two now which can accomplish great things. The justification and the sanctification of the soul. So the next conference they give, which will be uh, this afternoon, will actually concentrate on the, the virtues, especially those moral virtues that have to do with how we live our lives and whether or not they will, in fact, bring us to a destination in eternity, an everlasting life. And most importantly, the, the director of all those virtues which I mentioned to you before, the director is the virtue of prudence. I want to focus on that. Because whereas others put manliness in the virtue of temperance, or manliness in the virtue of fortitude, or even manliness in the virtue of justice. And yes, manliness depends on all these. That the one virtue that rules them all, really, that must govern them all, is the virtue of prudence. And that is the manliest of manly virtues. And that's what we have to strive for, and that's what we have to pray for. What is it we need to know? Please pray, and we have the rosary in ten minutes.